0: I had it on the screen, but I didn't mention to uh, Tommy, too, and you may have seen it on the screen, the Sorellos are not with us tonight because Allie got sick late this afternoon and pretty sick with vomiting, and Tyler has not been well, and so uh, they were getting ready, but um, with that situation developing, we're not able to be here. So please uh, keep them in your uh, in your prayers. Also, we mentioned in Bible class this morning that Wednesday night we will not have our classes. want to mention that again, but we will just all meet here in the auditorium for a worship period with song, scripture reading, prayer, and extend the Lord's invitation and, uh, as we have customarily done on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So uh, keep that in mind and be uh, prayerful of those who will be traveling and will not be with us. I know the Hewters will be leaving Tuesday for... Uh, Family gathering down in uh, Mobile and uh, with uh, Jared's folks, and uh, down there, and uh, Adam Evans and his uh, family will be uh, there as well. And uh, we appreciate the uh, input that I've heard, uh, as was requested by Brian Wednesday night and this morning. uh, Your input about Adam, Uh, he does have an interest in the work here, and uh, I personally am excited that he has an interest in the work here. I'm very impressed with him myself, and we've heard some very positive. Uh, comments from those who either heard him who were with us that day or were able to hear the CD or visit the website. And if you haven't uh, had an opportunity to hear his presentations, please uh, avail yourself of that uh, opportunity as, uh, as we move forward in that, uh, in that process. And uh, JC and Tommy and Brian are those who have been designated to, uh, to get your input on that, and they have already met once, as uh, Brian mentioned, with, uh, with Adam. Uh, as well. So we appreciate your input uh, on that. In our first lesson in a series this morning, we entitled What God Has Joined Together, we looked at the fact that God has joined himself to this world, to the universe, and that what God has joined, man cannot separate. We mentioned at the outset of this brief series of six lessons, which, Lord willing, I plan plan to present the next six times I stand in this pulpit, that indeed there is a principle here that obviously has in its immediate context the marriage relationship in Matthew 19, verse 6. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder, as the King James says, or separate as the new King James renders it. But that principle applies to so many areas, and that's what we're discussing, one of which this morning was... God's existence, the fact that God has joined Himself to His creation, to this universe. And it is sad beyond description that there are so many who are so determined to separate God from His creation. This morning we looked at three powerful arguments that prove God's existence, the moral argument, letting guilt represent that argument as we looked at the the word God itself, the name of God. The cosmological argument, the argument from cause and effect, or the argument about order, this orderly universe in which we live, speaks of God's creation. And then the D in God's name, the design, the teleological argument, the fancier word for that argument. And these three arguments lead us to God, guilt, order, design. Guilt, as we said this morning, is a good thing if we act properly upon that guilt to relieve ourselves of that guilt through the process that God in His mercy and love has made available to us to go from guilt to gladness by becoming children of His. his. There's an overwhelming evidence for the existence of God. But also, as we continue to look at what God has joined Himself to, we want to look at the fact that God has joined Himself to His Word. And that flows logically from our study this morning because does it not make sense that if God has shown us to some extent, and he has, his goodness in his creation, in physical creation, would he not communicate to the pinnacle of his creation, the crowning gem of his creation, mankind? Would he not communicate his will to man? Would he be, as the deists claimed, just one who has created us and then completely forgotten about us and has no dealings with us at all? Does that make even common sense? especially when we can see so much of the good that God has given us in creation. Yes, indeed, it makes sense that, indeed, God's existence necessitates God's communication of His will to man, man whom He created as a moral being, man whom He created with a free moral agency. And this book, the Bible, claims to be just that, the revelation of God's will to man. The familiar text to us all, I'm sure, is Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. How reassuring that text is about this book. It tells me and you that there is nothing that i need that's not supplied within the pages of god's revelation of himself to us peter makes the same assertion in second peter chapter 1 and verse 3 when he says as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness how peter through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue where is that knowledge of him deposited in the written Word. And in this revelation of God to man we are warned not to tamper with it in any way shape form or fashion. From Old Testament to New that is the clear admonition. Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 you shall not add to the word which I command you nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Then we come to the end of God's revelation of His will to man. In Revelation itself, the letter itself, the revelation letter. And John, though his words immediately apply to the context of his letter, the words have application to all of God's revelation to man. And here's what he says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life. From the holy city and from the things which are written in the book yes indeed that's an immediate application to john's revelation letter but obviously it has application to everything that has been given to us by the inspiration of the holy spirit and what is that process by which that has been accomplished how is it that the holy spirit has done it paul tells us in first corinthians chapter 2 verses 11 through 13 he describes the process a verbal inspiration, that is, every word being inspired. He writes, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. And then he goes on, now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. He's talking about himself and other inspired men. And then he goes on, these things we, that we have been given, we also speak. Now listen to it. Not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The indication is comparing spiritual ideas with the very spiritual words given to inspired men by the Holy Spirit. That is the process by which inspiration has come from God to man. It is described so beautifully for us there in 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 13. But over the years, the Bible has been attacked time and time again, and it is still under attack, under assault today, perhaps as in no other time in our lives. But, as the poet's words remind us, it has weathered all the storms of hate, it has withstood all the thunderbolts of wrath, It has triumphed over the edicts of tyranny. It has endured all the anathemas of infidelity. It has conquered all the gnawing teeth of time. It has outlived, outlifted, outlooked, outloved, outreached, outranked, and outblessed all other books. It still stands despite the attacks by the atheists who deny its author, by the agnostics who doubt the evidence for God and His Word. By the apostates, who leave the truth and by doing so deny the authority of the Word. By the apathetic, who claim to believe but whose lives don't reflect an active, obedient faith. And yes, by academia, many of whom have partaken of the pseudo-science of evolution with all of the consequences that go along with it. All of those attackers, Keep coming, and they keep going, and this keeps standing, and it always will. I've mentioned before the French philosopher Voltaire, who supposedly predicted that within a hundred years of his day, Christianity itself, he predicted, would have completely passed from the scene. Christianity, he said, in a hundred years will be a part of the past, not the present. And yet, after Voltaire had passed into eternity, his house was packed with Bibles. It became a depot for the Geneva Bible Society, and it was said that his old printing press was later used to print Bibles. Voltaire has gone. The Word of God is still here. Heaven and earth, Jesus said, will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And so think with me for a few minutes tonight about some of the ways in which the Bible Proves its inspiration and answers all of its attackers, no matter who they are. First, by its preparation. Yes, by its preparation. The Bible was written by about 40 men over a period of some 1,500 years. And these were men, as we've talked about before, who were from different social backgrounds, they were from different economic backgrounds, educational backgrounds. They wrote at different times from all of these different backgrounds and they never consulted with one another and yet they produced a book that is without contradiction and that exhibits perfect harmony. The preparation of God's word is a powerful argument for its inspiration. I've used this illustration before and I like this illustration. It compares to a a piece of marble, a giant piece of marble, let's say, that we could bring into a given location. And we could, um, we could divide that all, uh, all up among several sculptor, sculptors, just chip off various parts of it and give it to different sculptors, very talented men, and tell them, go away now, go away, and then come back and let's see what we come up with and they all go away, they go their separate ways, and they come back, and when they put those pieces together that have been separated from that large piece of marble, it all comes together in an amazingly beautiful statue beyond description. Is that even possible? Yes. It is if you had a master sculptor who had directed the work of each sculptor and told each exactly what to do and how to do it, then yes, a specific assignment with specific instructions could have been given so that the whole, when it came back together, could be that one piece. But you see, that's the point. You can't do it without a master sculptor. And the same thing is true of this book. It could never have come together as it has, without contradiction, in beautiful unity and harmony without a master sculptor, so to speak, without the guidance of God's Holy Spirit. God directed the entire process of preparation of his revelation, verbally inspiring the work of every writer. Preparation is a powerful argument. But what about prophecy? A prophet, as you well know, was one who spoke for God. And that's a better definition than one who predicts the future, because a prophet was more than one who predicted the future. He was one who spoke for God. Not everything a prophet ever said was prophetic. He spoke for God, but not everything he said was necessarily prophetic. So he spoke for God. But as a part of his ability to speak for God, he did have the power to predict future events. And that was part of the work of the prophet, and it's seen time and time again, isn't it? In the Old Testament, it's seen in the New New Testament as well. Isaiah, for example, is quite often called the Messianic prophet. Why? Because of his many prophecies, his many predictions about the Christ, and the coming of the Christ, and the suffering of the Christ. All of that, Isaiah 53, is filled with statements about the suffering of Christ, the suffering servant. How did Isaiah How did Isaiah predict those things? Isaiah also told of the future destruction of nations while they were still or in power or before the devastation had come to pass. For example, Babylon. Isaiah spoke of a, a world leader who would allow the Israelites to return to their homeland following seventy years of captivity. That leader would be the one who would succeed uh, Babylon's empire, that great empire that would fall. And Isaiah looked to the time when one named Cyrus would succeed the Babylonian empire, coming into power through the Medes and Persians who would conquer Babylon, and he said it would be Cyrus who would be the one who would issue the decree that would allow God's people to return from the Babylonian captivity. And he called him by name, Cyrus, Isaiah forty-four twenty-eight, Isaiah 45, 1. Both of those passages refer to this man. What's so special about it? What's special about it is the reference that Isaiah made was made a hundred years or so before Cyrus was ever born. A hundred years before he was born, Isaiah called him by name and said he would be the one who would issue the the decree to allow God's people to come home. How could that have been done? The prophecies concerning Christ number more than 300. More than 300. All fulfilled in minute detail. And there are 24 prophecies about the Christ that were written between 500 to 1,000 years before they were fulfilled, and those prophecies were fulfilled in one 24-hour period, covering the passion of Christ. Now, one prediction might be a lucky guess, as someone might say. Two might be coincidental. But when you get more than 300, you're beyond the realm of coincidence, obviously. And then, of course, there's the related area of scientific foreknowledge, as it is called with which I'm sure we are familiar. In other words, scientific or medical uh, statements that were made long before man discovered them to be true, the Bible had a foreknowledge of them and said something about them. And so many examples of that could be given. In 1650, for example, man learned that the earth is held in place by invisible forces. In the year 1650, we learned that. But the writer of Job, thousands of years earlier, wrote these words. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth upon nothing. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth upon nothing, Job 26, verse 7. And yet long after those words were written, there were some very highly scientific theories about how the earth was suspended. you remember some of them on the back of a giant turtle? Swimming in a cosmic sea? Or Atlas supported them on his shoulders? Highly scientific. It is he that stretches out the north, or he stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. What about Isaiah 40, verse 22? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, Isaiah wrote. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Has man always known that the earth was spherical in shape? No. The flat earth theory was in effect long after Isaiah penned those words. And it was not until 1940 that man determined he could not count the stars. That's when he gave up, counting the stars in 1940. But you remember Genesis 15, verse 5? God brought Abraham outside and said to him, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. God was saying to Abraham, You can't count the stars. And if man had listened to the Word of God, he'd have quit trying long before 1940. We've mentioned, of course, the fact that in the 19th century, man discovered that blood was necessary to life. But Moses, by inspiration, told us that in Leviticus 17:11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So many other examples of scientific foreknowledge, as it is often called, could be cited, which clearly demonstrate the inspiration of the Bible. So there's its preparation, there's its prophecy, and then there is its preservation. I have it right here. And how many people have tried to destroy it completely through the years? Many have but you can get a copy of this book just about anywhere, can't you? It's been preserved. God in his providence has done that. He's preserved for us his word in reliable translations so that we may know that we have the word of God today. Now, as we've often said, there are, there are so-called translations out there that are anything but a translation. They're more like commentaries, paraphrases. Dynamic equivalence, not, not an effort to translate word for word. But there are good translations. I hold the New King James in my hand, a good translation. The King James, the American Standard, these are accurate translations. And again, Matthew twenty four thirty five, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. How has he preserved that word for us? He hasn't done it through a miraculous process. He's done it through a providential process. The Old Testament writings were carefully copied and preserved through time. The scribes had very severe regulations placed upon them as they made their copies of the Old Testament scriptures. And you remember the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, as they were called, that took place back in 1947 when a young shepherd boy was throwing rocks into a cave and heard some pottery breaking and went to investigate further and found these scrolls the Dead Sea Scrolls in the caves of Qumran near the Dead Sea, they gave us, these scrolls did, further evidence of the accuracy of the Old Testament writings that we've been reading for years and years and years because those scrolls predated the manuscripts from which the Old Testament that we have was translated. The Old Testament that we have was translated from Manuscripts from about 900 to 1,000 A.D. But when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947, some of those went back to around 200 or so B.C. And yet they were scrolls of some of the same Old Testament books. So if someone could have compared those manuscripts several hundred years before the manuscripts from which we have our Old Testament books, if they could compare them and say, whoa, these these are nothing. These old ones are nothing like these. What has happened over the period of 900 to 1,000 years? There has obviously been some sloppy copying done because they are not alike at all. That was not the case. No, that was not the case. They were right on, pretty much so, showing the meticulous nature of the copyist work over the years of time. They were not inspired copyists, but God in His providence has preserved through their meticulous efforts His Word. When it comes to the New Testament, we have more than 5,000 manuscripts which testify to the authenticity of God's Word, far more than for any other ancient literary work. And beyond that, we have ancient versions, and we have the writings of those that they called the Church Fathers. Some of the ancient versions are older than the manuscripts, and when it comes to the writings of the Church Fathers, a man by the name of Bruce Bruce Metzger, who studied these matters carefully, of course, tells us, quote, indeed... So extensive are these citations, from the church fathers, that is, that if all other sources for our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, they, the writings of these church fathers, would be sufficient alone for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. You have that much writing in the writing of the church fathers to reproduce practically all of the New Testament if you lost every bit of it. So it just simply becomes another source to corroborate the authenticity of the New Testament that we have. And then F.J.A. Hort, who also has studied these matters very carefully, obviously, made a statement that I, I think is very, very significant with regard to the great bulk of the words that we have in the New Testament. He said, with regard to this great bulk of the words of the New Testament, there is no variation and no other ground of doubt, Hort estimates the number of words admitted on all hands to be above doubt, that is, without any controversy, at not less than seven-eighths of the whole. You can't doubt seven-eighths of this. You can't even doubt at all. Seven-eighths of it. And then he goes on to say, then concerning the remaining one-eighth that's left, when we leave out the mere differences of spelling, the number still left in doubt is about one-sixtieth of the whole. And when we select from this one-sixtieth of the whole, those which in any sense can be called substantial variations, that is among all these manuscripts, and you've compared them, one-sixtieth, when you get it down to one-sixtieth and you say, okay, Among that one-sixtieth now we have left, what can we call substantial variations? Hort says their number can hardly be more than one-thousandth part of the entire text. That's how much work has been done to validate the New Testament and its authenticity and its accuracy. And I could add that that one-thousandth part will not affect your salvation or mine in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Now, how did God do that? He did it through his providence. He did it through his providence. He didn't inspire the copyist, but they were determined because they knew they were handling the Word of God and believed it with all their heart. They were determined to be faithful in translating and transcribing it and copying it and preserving it. And so we come to the final proof. And it is powerful. The final proof I'd like for us to think about is the product of this book. The product of it. We've seen its preparation and the prophecy of it. The preservation of it. What about the product of it? What is the product of it? What do you mean the product of it? Well, the product of the Bible is what? You, if you're a Christian tonight, you're a product. You're a product tonight. The product is a pure life of peace. Peace beyond the world's understanding. Produced, produced in those who've undergone a complete transformation by bringing their lives into harmony with the teaching of this book, specifically, of course, for us today, the New Testament. A man by the name of H.L. Hastings once wrote, quote, there are men who study philosophy, astronomy, geology, geography, and mathematics. But Did you ever hear a man say, I was an outcast, a wretched inebriate, a disgrace to my race, and a nuisance in the world, until I began to study mathematics? And I learned the multiplication table. And then I turned my attention to geology, got me a little hammer, and knocked off the corners of the rocks and studied the formation of the earth. And since that time, I have been happy as the day is long. I feel like singing all the time. My soul is full of triumph and peace. And health and blessing have come to my desolate home once more. Ever hear anybody say that after studying mathematics? Never heard me say it, I guarantee you. Just the thought of studying it put me into... Quite a state. (laughs) Not a state of joy and bliss. (laughs) But here's what the Word of God can cause an obedient believer to say. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's words in Galatians 2.20. Here's what the Word of God and calls one to say, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians five, fourteen and 15. Here's what the word of God can cause a person to say. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians three, thirteen and 14. Here's what the word of God properly applied can cause the obedient believer to say, even in times of hardship and trial and struggle. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, Can cause one near death to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's words in Second Timothy four, seven and eight. God has given us compelling evidence that he has joined himself to his world, as we discussed this morning, and compelling evidence that he has joined himself to his word through its preparation, through its prophecies, through its preservation, and yes, through its product. And thanks be to God for all here tonight who are products of this word. But if you are here tonight and not yet a product of this word, you can be by a belief in Jesus, the Christ, that leads you to repent of your sins, to confess him as the Christ, and then to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of your sins. And if you've done that, but you have wandered and need to come home to your first love, we plead with you to do that now as we stand to sing to encourage you.